Hello and welcome to Our Three Cents, a podcast celebrating the very finest video games. My name is Jonathan Dunn, and I'm joined by my childhood friend, Chris Dow. A snotty nose. And my adulthood friend, Minty Booth. I love deodorants. And we are discussing our all-time top 100 video games. Woo! really hope this isn't the first episode that people are tuning into because they'll listen to that style of intro and think that I've been replaced by Pat Sharp. That's all right. This week, we have our number 58. But first, a question. Are you born again Christians ready for this next round? (laughs) That's a good one. The score is currently 21-18 to Chris. You've worked up quite a lead so let's see if minty can claw it back in the post-apocalyptic game series fallout your primary stats are listed under the acronym special can you name each primary stat from the acronym what okay so the way we're going to score this is there are seven letters and i'm going to give you in turn a chance to guess one Right. And whoever ends up getting the most gets the point. Okay. Minty, you can have the first guess. Okay. Um, I will go for intelligence. That is correct. One point, well, one tally for Minty. (laughs) Yeah. Chris. Uh, Stamina. That is not one of the answers. Oh, damn it. Oh, strength. That is one of the answers. Um, What was the word again? Is it special? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> I just totally forgot. So we've we've had uh, intelligence and strength. All right. How about power? No. Oh, fuck's sake. Um, charisma? Charisma is one of them. Yeah. Minty just needs one more correct answer to take the point. See, I, I haven't played a Fallout game, so I'm, I'm guessing. I'm trying to go by like generic RPG stats, and I'm not winning. Um, luck. Luck is one of them. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, endurance? Endurance is one of them, Minty. Yes, it is. Oh, wow. You've got four tallies, and that means you get the points. Congratulations. Yes. It is now 21-19 to Minty. Well done. Cool. The full answer is strength, perception, endurance, charisma, uniqueness, nerve, and talent. No, sorry, that's RuPaul. Strength, perception, <laughs> endurance, charisma, intelligence, agility, and luck. So what have we been playing this week? Minty? Oh, you know me. Dragon Quest. Yeah. Chris, what have you been playing this week? (laughs) Uh, I've been playing the the recent port of The Witcher 3 on Switch. Ah, yes. How is it? Stable? It is stable, and it is a remarkable port, actually. I mean, am I going to sit down and finish a 150-hour open-world game on the Switch? Don't know. Probably not. But am I going to play it more than the 45 minutes I did in the PS4? Probably. Yeah. Mm. I mean, the, the, the Switch is really good for this sort of thing because it lets you actually fit games around whatever else you're doing. It makes sense for a game like this to, to have the ability to dip in and out in a, in a more convenient way. Yeah. And I mean, the port itself, it is a bit blurry when you're playing on a big screen. It uses kind of like a, a dynamic resolution to keep the performance up. Sure. So it kind of, it drops at points when you've got either a lot going on or where you've got like a, a big view of like an open vista sort of thing. And it all just turns into one big pixel. <laughs> yeah, essentially. But it, playing handheld, it, it's, it looks remarkable and it still holds up really, really well because even when it drops, it doesn't drop enough to really stand out on the on the smaller resolution screen. Yeah. And, and even on a big TV, like it equips itself reasonably well. But what's most impressive is just the ambition of kind of moving a game like that of, of that size yeah to what is essentially like five-year-old mobile tech now in the switch yeah it's absurd it's, it's obscene and, and i'm always going to support 
any sort of game like this which punches this far above its weight yeah like I, I just really like the um the ambition to try and fit this stuff in, into hardware that really shouldn't allow it yeah so yeah we'll, we'll see how i get on like i've played a couple hours i mean i've enjoyed it so far but as i say it's like it's not necessarily my type of game that i, I would normally pick up and play as as evidenced by the fact i couldn't be bothered on the ps4 but yeah, the Switch at least will, will open things up a little bit more, I think, and, and let me play it a little bit longer. Lovely. I have been continuing playing Mario Kart Tour. Ooh. We're now into its third tour since its release. And the way it works is the tours last for two weeks and you get a whole series of cups to race through and two weeks to earn rubies to unlock more characters unlock gold stars to unlock more presents and get more things and you also have a week by week ranking as well for you to ascend up tiers and um when you go up higher tiers you can get more rubies and get more stuff and i'm still really really impressed with the balance that the game has the sort of premium currency in the game is rubies and you do generally get rubies at a fairly consistent rate you either get them from getting enough gold stars from the different cups to unlock some presents and you might get three rubies five rubies depending on how so far up you get there are also challenges sort of like achievements that will give you rubies if you unlock them like defeating 100 enemies with a green shell for example it doesn't feel like i need to chuck money into it in order to get enough rubies to keep unlocking stuff I know a lot of people have moaned about the randomised nature of the unlock system and you, you've no, you know, there's no way of guaranteeing what you're going to get. But then it's all part of the fun because it means that you save up enough rubies to unlock something and it's like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to get. And then you just work with what you get. And to be honest, like the, the actual difference you get in the races and the carts and the gliders, it makes such little difference to actually how well you're doing in the game in terms of their individual driving mechanics. The thing you really, really want are drivers that are perfectly matched to tracks in that certain tour, which will allow you to have, say, three weapons at once instead of two weapons, or a glider that allows you to hold combos for longer. But I must say, I just, I just love it. I just absolutely love it. It's really, really fun. It feels like I'm playing Mario Kart until, of course, I ended up playing some Mario Kart 8 at the weekend and then I realised that I'd forgotten how to play Mario Kart <laughs> because I've played so much Mario Kart Tour. <laughs> I've stayed subscribed to the gold subscription, which is like 4 99 a month, and I didn't quite understand what I was getting first because it looked like I wasn't really getting much it looked like you unlock 200cc mode and 200cc mode is faster but it doesn't give you any more points than if you're racing at 150cc so I was like well what's the point but if you are a gold member like Austin Powers <laughs> if you are subscribed uh, if you are subscribed to the gold package then you also unlock more stuff if you unlock a present there are like special gold uh, rewards and there are also a whole other page of gold challenges every week that you can unlock and that allows you to get more gold stars and in turn more rubies and also the main thing with 200cc I've discovered is because it is so much faster it means there's a lot less downtime between 
various elements in the tracks which means it's easier to hold combos for longer hmm. uh, so say for example there were two little mini jumps down a track on 50cc it's so slow that the combo is not going to hold between the two but with 200cc it's just it's not even a you know it's a no-brainer and all of a sudden I'm pulling off like 40-50 times combos because everything's so fast and everything's so close together that it's much much easier to get the higher points you need to get more stars well so yeah Having a great time. Can't see why I'm not going to continue to play it and continue to have a darn good, ruddy good, darn good time. <laughs> well, I, I do honestly appreciate like the update. I know we said before, like it'd be nice to hear how you got on. Because this is the type of stuff that when these games launch, they're kind of covered on like big websites and blogs. And then often it's just absolutely cold after that. Yeah. And, and I think it's it's more worthwhile to kind of have someone who's actually playing it state their experience and say kind of you know whether they think it feels like a kind of grubby cash grab or whether it feels like there's enough content to keep you playing Mm. because that's that's literally just not covered outside of saying like oh there's a there's a special event coming up or something like that that they want to just kind of sell yeah yeah it's good to hear that it's actually a game (laughs) and it has something to to keep you playing outside of like the little launch window when uh, everything feels quite free and easy you're welcome good thank you So, moving on to the rankings. Starting this week, we have my game. Oh. So, my 58th favourite video game is one that was a very precious experience to me. We spoke a few weeks ago, quite candidly, in our well-being special about our own struggles with mental health, and these issues are very, very hard to articulate, and certainly harder to fully convey how it feels to someone who maybe hasn't been through these things. And one of the things I love about video games is the fact that, owing to its interactive nature, it can allow somebody to experience things that just can't be effectively conveyed in other media. And it's because of these factors that I would say Celeste is, at its heart, an art game rather than a simple platform game. So your central character in Celeste is a girl called Madeline who has set out on a journey to climb Celeste Mountain. Following a breakup, she's riddled with anxiety and self-doubt and depression and the achievement of reaching the summit of Celeste is both a, a literal and allegorical mountain for her to climb to rediscover herself and overcome her demons. Now, the way that this game conveys the effects of these mental health issues is quite simply phenomenal especially when you look at the tools they have for conveying them. It's low-resolution pixel art, which is superbly animated, and it tells you everything you need to know. And this is bolstered by equally beautifully designed character profiles that appear in the dialogue boxes, and their faces change with the ever-shifting emotional journey of the different characters. For a game that is so low-resolution, with no spoken dialogue, it conveys so much emotion and personality that i mean i've, I've never seen its equal in, in terms of that setup and these perfectly placed palette of characters that you meet along the journey are brilliantly written equally as allegorical as the mountain itself and offer the story beats that work in tandem with the ever-evolving gameplay mechanics that are introduced throughout it's almost akin to something like pilgrim's progress with the characters you meet <laughs> Like the old lady at the foot of the mountain who's trying to dissuade you from even attempting the climb at all could very easily be called Mrs. Self-Doubt. <laughs> and uh, Mr. Oshiro, the ghostly concierge of a hotel who's trying to convince you just to stay put in the safety of his establishment could certainly be called 
old mister going back to bed because it's easier to stay here than face the realities of life. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Seamless. And this is all before a dark mirror version of yourself splinters out of Madeline and also then serves as the villain of the piece. And she's the representation of all of Madeline's negative thoughts. And the way that the dialogue evolves between these two is... It's some of the most emotionally powerful and effective writing I've ever seen in a video game. I won't give anything away, but the way that the storyline resolves itself is so honest and heart-wrenching and just deeply moving and very cathartic. I won't say much more about the storyline because I think that it's, like I said, it's, it's really something that needs to be played and experienced firsthand to get the full impact of the game. And I, I don't want to diminish that for anyone but i will say one thing it features the most accurate depiction of a panic attack i've ever seen in anything there are many many elements of this game that hit very very close to home and it, it genuinely felt cathartic to see them expressed and gave you that sensation gave me that sensation that yeah i wasn't the only one who had experienced these things like this and that was very very comforting on the surface, Celeste is a very simple game. You know, Madeline can jump, she can climb and dash in midair, and everything else is level design. And the design of these levels is up there with the best puzzle platformers that there are. So many times I was convinced that the designers had made a mistake with the layout of a level because it looked so impossible to traverse. But then after a few failed attempts, stopping to take a breath and reanalyzing the situation, you spot something that you may have missed before in all of your frustration, and that becomes the key to making it onto the next phase. Allegory. Yeah, wow. <laughs> now, the game is hard. It's, it's really, really hard. Once you finish the main game, there are even harder alternate versions of the levels to beat, much in the same way that Ed McMillan wasn't content with making just simply hard games with Super Meat Boy or The End Is Nigh. His masochistic instincts got the better of him and he put in a whole bunch of hellish extra content. I mean, I mean literally satanic. <laughs> I mean, it's not quite the same here with Celeste because the, the difficulty of the game is intrinsically linked to the core experience and the message of the game. And you wouldn't feel the struggle of Madeline, you know, so deeply without struggling through the levels yourself. We've talked a lot before about hard games not being accessible for a lack of an easy mode. And I think, Chris, you actually cited Celeste as an example of a game that does this right. Yeah, I remember reading it. It's got some quite deep accessibility options, doesn't it? Yeah. Much like something like Dark Souls, the game needs to have that level of difficulty for the the message that it's trying to express be conveyed. But the d developers of Celeste have thought more about why that is and the way they've implemented the assist mode in the game is is genius. It allows them to still convey the same messages in the same way, but also open it up for players who you know might be struggling for whatever reason. And it's fr it's framed perfectly within the game as well. It, the game certainly it starts and encourages you not to use the assist mode, but it also doesn't actively dissuade you from doing it it's it's not condescending it's accepting and people may need help from time to time and it works almost like a learning tool than an out and out god mode just to help you blast through and get to the next bit and it gives you a little menu of options to choose from depending on the situation you're in and, and what you may need to to get through it you know you could become invincible or extend your mid-air dash 
or slowing the game down and you can even slow the game down in increments of 10 percent so it's very customizable so even in this you're being taught the benefits of slowing down breathing problem solving in defeating the challenge before you something that's also really nice about this is apparently one of the developers who coded this mode specifically said it only took a couple of days so it's not a huge accessibility option that takes a whole swathe of people to code you know that only the biggest studios can afford all it takes is a bit of thought to open up the game to a whole extra sector of people and that's just really admirable and like i said brilliantly done without diminishing the experience of the game or the message that the developers want to give you celeste is the sort of game that you could write academic papers about and I could talk about so many aspects of the game that I loved, like the incredible music score or the hidden strawberry collectibles that much like Chris, you mentioned in something like Braid. Yeah. There's no reward for actually getting them other than the fact that you have got them or like the beautifully styled retroness of the B-side and C-side bonus levels. And I mean, I, I, I could spend all day talking about it, uh, but I'm, but I won't. <laughs> but I will end with saying this. Celeste is the best game about mental health that I've played. It's also one of the best designed and fun to play puzzle platformers. It's worth playing for the story alone, but come for the story, stay for the game, and you will be left deeply, deeply rewarded. I really want to play it. <laughs> <laughs> like, I've wanted to play it since, since it kind of came out initially, but I, I'd never really read a big sort of deep dive into why it was so revered. Mm. I ordered it quite a while back for a physical copy that had some production issues because they wanted to include all the post-release content, essentially. And there's been loads of that. Yeah, and it's, it's finally done now, I think. They, they finished the last section, but it's been in limbo for a while, like the actual physical production. Yeah. So when it, when it does turn up, I'm, I'm really excited to give that a go. Now bolstered by, obviously, your high praise. I really look forward to hearing what you think of it. Chris? Can you please tell us about your 58th favourite video game? My 58th favourite video game has uh, nothing in common with, with what you just said about Celeste because it's it's a very, um, it's not a deep experience. Like It's not operating on several levels or anything like that. It's, it's a game that is just purely about silly fun. And I, I kind of mentioned a few games, like we're talking about like Mega Drive games going, going back, um, that it's, they're very gamey games. And I think this in particular is one of these, that it's like it works purely as just a big, explosive, gamey experience, as that were. Gamier than a grouse pie. <laughs> Ooh, very good. <laughs> I mean, for a bit of context, like thinking back to uh, when I talked about GoldenEye on the N64, uh, I mentioned that it didn't run terribly well. Uh, to, to kind of look at it today especially and often GoldenEye would run at frame rates like in single digits essentially from memory and I haven't checked this explicitly I'm pretty sure even at best case scenarios it's a game that aimed to run at 20 frames per second which is like significantly lower than what we expect in games most of the time now and its sequel or pseudo sequel Perfect Dark a few years on it looked better but it actually ran worse in places like it, it, it wasn't a well performing game but for both of those games, no one cared. Like at, at the time when, when you were a kid, you were playing these games, it didn't matter that they didn't run well. And what I find really fascinating about games now is there's, there's a strange kind of culture around performance metrics yeah. that I, I find quite fascinating, but it is something that I also find really redundant. Like talking about The Witcher earlier, I don't think it's necessarily that important 
that a game has to perform amazingly well or, or look as sharp as possible to still be a, a fun experience. And, and we see kind of like websites and articles now that will castigate a game for dropping from, say, 60 frames per second down to 58 frames per second in a particularly resource-heavy area. And it, it just seems redundant. It's a really strange thing to nitpick in a game. Or, or when people talk about inconsistent frame pacing in a game, as if anyone has any authority or idea to even know what that means. <laughs> uh, and, and I think a lot of really fun games, like the one I'm going to talk about today, and, and really ambitious ports, they get dismissed before they've even hit store shelves because we've, we have this obsession with like these analysis pieces that reduce games down to just a series of numbers that are devoid of like context of, of what well, the context of fun, essentially. Now, I know in... in certain times we've mentioned performance in games like we said about Link's Awakening I remember you saying about the the port of uh, Rock of Ages on the Switch Jonathan that was a, a bit kind of like muddy compared to the PS4 yeah but I think because we all play primarily on the Switch these days it's clear that the technical stuff is seldom what is driving our decisions to purchase these games you know we're, we're jumping in most of the time because we hear they're fun and then we play them and then hopefully we have fun and my 58th favorite video game is one that was all about fun and certainly not about performance. It's a game on the Xbox 360 that I don't know if either of you will have played, but it is very good. And it's called Earth Defense Force 2017. Silence. <laughs> Earth Defense Force 2017. It's a game that looked at what at that point was still like quite a fledgling culture of kind of frame and resolution counting and countered with its own mission statement, which basically said, if our game doesn't crash, we don't care how it performs. And I don't think they, they bothered with anything else beyond that. It was just, if it runs, uh, that's fine. It, it doesn't matter. Uh, and it's one of my favorite third-person shooters because it, it prioritizes having fun over everything else. And the series, like, like I say, I, I assume you haven't played it. The EDF series goes back to kind of the PS2 when a lot of, I suppose you'd call them like B-tier games were being produced in Japan under a, a range called Simple 2000. And these were games that basically cost 2,000 yen, so about 15 quid, I guess, at the time, roughly. And they were very, very cheap budget releases, came out kind of the end of the PS2 generation. And for some weird reason, a lot of Western publishers would then pick these up, do a really sort of shitty localization job, and then just pump them out over here for cheap as well. So we got the first EDF title just called Monster Attack on the PS2. And the game has kind of iterated on that formula, but it, it's never really moved that far. So in every one of these games, you control a member of the Earth Defense Force, which is a group of kind of like a military group, essentially tasked with repelling alien attacks. And for reasons that are never explained in the game, the aliens always take the form of spiders and ants and other kind of like B-movie creepy crawlies, as well as huge uh, like metallic robots and things or, or sky filling UFOs, all a bit kind of um, War of the Worldsy. And each game takes place over like a handful of small maps within kind of uh, major cities. So one game was kind of mainly Japan. One kind of had like European cities, things like that. And the objectives are never anything deeper than either kill all the enemies or really kill all of the enemies if they're going to like continually spawn on top. It always has a shitty B-movie plot and it's nicely accompanied by incredibly poor B-movie style voice acting as well. And it's really, really crap, but it feels really befitting to the game and its kind of budget roots. And as later iterations have kind of grown in scope and scale, they've always retained that same naive vocal work. And I think it's nice that it's enabled EDF as a series to kind of retain a unique character, that it stands aside because it, it's filling a very, like I said, a sort of B-movie area in video games that I think largely we've moved on from now because, you know, budgets have grown in, in terms of kind of larger scale games. But EDF still stands alone as being something that is really riffing on that kind of low budget 
production. Each game always has like rudimentary destructible environments as well. Nothing in terms of like what we understand now is like big physics, realistic explosions or anything like that. This is pretty much, there is a square of a skyscraper. If I shoot a rocket at it, it will fall down. And it's just really simple, stupid fun. And what stands out and kind of brings it back to that thing I said at the beginning about performance is it's stupid fun that is often rendered like almost unplayable by the game's desire to just fill the screen with enemies at all times. So especially as you kind of ramp up in difficulty, you almost can't see what's going on sometimes, but it's just a big explosive experience. There is, you know, it's, it's filling the screen with enemies uh, and you're just having to deal with it the best you can. And I honestly think it runs worse than GoldenEye did at times, but <laughs> no one who played it cared in the same way that no one who played GoldenEye was that worried about kind of performance metrics back when that was released. Those who kind of got into EDF as a game, like this one in particular, 2017, and also any of its sequels or, or prequels, as it were, no one cared because it's something that was just really fun to to play and, and kind of be in. It has a very singular vision for, for this idea that it's just going to fill the world with stuff to kill and stuff to blow up and just leave you to it. There's loose strategy to the game. And so before every stage, you're allowed to select two weapons from like an ever-growing list that, that is populated as you go through the game. So you've got the usual kind of automatic rifles or long-range sniper rifles or rocket launchers, blah, blah, blah. But what's weird is it's entirely possible to equip yourself with a combination of two weapons, which means it's actually impossible to pass a stage. Yeah. <laughs> because if it's a level that you find out has lots of air enemies and you've picked a shotgun and a flamethrower, you can't hit them. There's no way to beat that stage. And it seems really stupid and it can be really frustrating like the first time you play a stage and realise that you've basically snookered yourself. I think it's quite refreshing in a way that the developers essentially just built the toolbox and just said, have a go, just, just see what happens. And most games these days would be very forthright in telling you off, as it were. Like you, you pick the wrong gun. It's like, oh, I don't think that's going to work for this stage, Sonny. But EDF just lets you kind of bum around and is confident enough in the game itself being fun that that sort of player error becomes like a bit of a learning experience. That's really important because the game ramps up in difficulty like violently across the 60 odd <laughs> stages in the game. So it starts off being quite approachable and, and achievable as you're just killing like a horde of ants as it were. But very soon afterwards, you, you've got, like I said, millions of enemies at the same time. The game is running at three frames a second. You don't know what you're shooting at. And it's, it is very, very tough. But it does, it lets you even within that sort of prepare and develop your own set of skills because it has like a rudimentary loot system that enemies always have the chance to drop either a new weapon uh, which you collect at the end of the stage when you when you finish it or pervasive health upgrades so you you can collect little sort of modules which add one to your overall health and that is retained across all difficulties you play all stages you play so it gives it like a sense of almost like an rpg light thing like you're, you're not managing stat upgrades or skill trees but you are seeing your character grow in both the aggressive sense with weapons, but also defensive capabilities because your armor is stronger. And it's just, it's big, stupid fun. Like I keep coming back to the same thing. It's not a deep game. It has nothing kind of underneath the core experience to say like, oh, there's a, there's a really special story here or anything like that. It's very, very upfront in what it's trying to do. And it's just something that you can pick a few levels apart, play a few, leave it for a while, come back to, and you're always going to see some sense of progress as you're working your way through the difficulties. When it first came out on the 360, that was a time when achievements were, were very new in games. It was like quite an early, almost, not launch title, but within the first year of the 360 being released. And achievements would go on to be used in much more creative and satisfying ways. But the, the kind of trophies within this game actually worked quite nicely. And essentially all you got was 
one achievement for finishing the entire game on easy, one for finishing the entire game on normal, all the way up to the, the highest difficulty, which was just called Inferno in capital letters. <laughs> but for that kind of way of, of, of doling out the achievements, it showed you that you were meant to approach this as working from the easiest up. Like it, it's a game that you will never, ever survive if you try and start on medium the first time you play. It's kind of, it's meant to be approached in like a tiered system that you beat the game on easy, your character is then built up enough to do the next difficulty and so on. And when I was playing it properly on the 360, I beat it three times over, so easy, normal, and hard, before I kind of grew a bit tired of it. But I did enjoy having a blast on a few stages on Inferno at that stage, just to see how much I could tank the frame rate. <laughs> Again, like I'm, I'm firing a billion rockets into the sky, into a billion ants. Uh, there's UFOs over the top that are just like raining down enemies on the stage. And it did, like I said, it, it drops to kind of like a flick book, like single digit frame rate. <laughs> but it never crashed. <laughs> and like I said, the only thing I think they said when they when they were developing this game, the developer Sandlot said, if it runs, that's that's good enough for us. And I think it's a really big, dumb game that knows exactly what it is and is confident enough in what it kind of is offering on its own menu that performance just doesn't matter. It's it's not the thing that they were ever worried about in development. It's a very kind of singular vision of just saying, blow stuff up and you'll have a good time. And eventually you'll blow up so much stuff that you probably won't be able to see what's going on, but you're still going to be having fun. <laughs> and uh, that's that's the whole EDF series. Like This got a port to the Vita as well, which um, ran probably better than the 360 somehow, despite the fact the Vita is, is significantly less powerful. And it has had more recent versions on the PS4, all of them are recommended. They're not hugely expensive. If, if you find one, I, I would say it's definitely worth a go. But it is a very sort of, it's quite a niche series that I, I don't think a huge amount of people are aware of. I've never heard of it. No, me neither. But it's, it's definitely something I think is, is worth a play. If, if you ever see a copy cheap somewhere, give it a go because you might find that it's actually the type of third person game that can engage you, even if that's not really your genre. But I found it much more fun than something like Gears of War. <laughs> Well, there we go. Words to live by. <laughs> <laughs> Lastly, but certainly not leastly, we have Meastly. Uh, Minty, Booth, can you please tell us about your 58th favourite video game? For my pick this week, I'm talking about a very important game. It was made by an all-star team of developers and artists who were called The Dream Team by Square. Interesting. And in terms of its uh, scope, the sheer amount of content, character development, its fantastic battle system, the graphics and the emotions that each chapter of the story evoked, it was nothing short of revolutionary. It's widely lauded as one of the greatest Final Fantasy games ever made, if not one of the greatest video games ever made. So Chrono Trigger initially follows... <laughs> <laughs> Chrono Trigger initially follows three friends dicking around with a time machine. Oh, are you reading the blurb for the podcast? That doesn't work. Carry on. <laughs> oh, no, it does, though, a bit. It's good. <laughs> That's quite good. <laughs> Chrono Trigger initially follows three friends dicking around with a time machine before amassing a small group of companions from different eras to fight Magus, the generic humanoid villain that always seems to be present in these games and is never the final threat before great tragedy befalls the team and they realise that Magus was only the beginning. Ooh. For a game that came out nearly 25 years ago, it's still as fresh today as it ever was. It's a tumultuous journey through prehistory right up to a near future ravaged by the great world-ending evil that is hinted at throughout the game as we hop, skip and jump through time hot on the tails of the otherworldly threat to all our characters hold dear. 
Now, time travel is a little bit messy. Oh, notoriously. Yeah, if everything we've seen in films and read in books to be true, you might step on a butterfly and fundamentally alter the course of history. You might play the guitar while at a disco and nearly bang your mum. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's yeah. all sorts of things to consider, and even more repercussions if you fail to heed the dangers associated with time travel. There isn't a huge amount of that in this game, but it's great to see like the ancestors of some key characters uh, in the past stages and maybe even tweak a few events in the future by defeating a monster's great-great-great-great-great-grandfather here and there. Um, I don't want to spoil one of the main story beats, but the game has 12 multiple endings, which you get depending on when you decide to destroy the final boss, who you decide to kill it with, and how much of the last part of the game you decided to complete. It's on Steam, it's on iOS and Android, it's super easy to get a hold of, buy it, and play a piece of history. <laughs> yeah, love that game. Well, there we have it, another three games. First of all, we had Celeste, then we had... Earth Defence Force 2017. Before finally... Ah, oh, we finished with lovely Chrono Trigger. If you've enjoyed this episode, or if indeed you've enjoyed any of our episodes, please do like and subscribe, leave us a review, share it with your friends, share it on social media, tell a loved one. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do it if you go to www.google.com, type in <laughs> Facebook, and then search for Our Three Cents. You can find us there, and you can chat with us, and you can ask us questions that you might like us to answer on a future episode. It's been a while since we've had one. Mm. Send one in. <sighs> Why not ask again? <laughs> or you can reach out to us individually. I'm on Twitter, at Jonathan Dunn. I'm on Twitter, at Chaz underscore Hodges. I'm on Twitter as well. Clement underscore Boo. And please do join us next week for our number 57s. Ooh, my lucky number. It is, isn't it? Very well.